Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the Primate Cast number 45. The release date for today's podcast is July the 18th, 2016. Now, I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and in this podcast, we feature an interview I did with Dr. Ralph Adolphs a few weeks ago on June the 4th of this year. So Dr. Adolphs is a Bren Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience, as well as Professor of Biology at Caltech. So his work focuses broadly on behavioral and social neuroscience. This work has received numerous awards and other accolades uh, over his career, and led towards his establishing Caltech's Conte Center for the Neurobiology of Social Decision-Making. Now, recently, between March and June of this year, he was actually invited on sabbatical here by Professor Tetsuro Matsuzawa. So he spent those three months in Kyoto, and his main focus, which we get into during the interview, was really to put together ideas and start, or I guess complete a structure for a book he's working on about emotion. Uh, in humans, but also more comparatively across other species. So in the interview, we talk about emotion. We talk about some of the things related to his stay, the other things related to his stay in Japan. And we talk a lot about how Caltech facilitated his real data-driven approach to understanding the social brain. For anyone looking for more information after this podcast about Dr. Adolphs and his work, you can Google him. He should be your top hit there. Or follow the links attached to this podcast page here at SciCasp. And I also highly recommend anyone uh, to look for his TEDx Caltech talk, which was really great about social cognition, the social brain. Now, the last thing I just want to mention quickly is that this interview took place at a restaurant over breakfast at a Denny's, actually. And so I do apologize for all of the background noise, but I hope you nonetheless enjoy the interview with Dr. Ralph Adolphs. I think you've been to Japan, I guess, multiple times now. Yeah, I can't even remember exactly. Six, seven, something like that. Oh, wow. But, but only to very restricted number of places. I mean, it's basically always, well, it's always been in the context of a meeting. So it's, you know, Tokyo always, and then Kyoto maybe three, four times, Nagoya twice, Awaji Island. It's about a... You were at Awajishima, so you saw the... For, uh, for, for, for a conference, yeah. yeah. Did so you get to see in the, the conference center, you know. The and, Japanese macaques there? No. No, I really didn't get to see too much around okay. there. Yeah, I was just stuck in a conference center. Okay. That, that, I don't know if you knew, but that island's population of Japanese macaques is famous for being, unfortunately famous for being, uh, having a high proportion of those congenital malformations. Oh, no, I didn't know that. So, they, oh. but, so this is the first time that I guess you've had a chance to actually establish right. here in Japan. Right, it's very, very different. Down. So, you know, in the past it was always very short, you know, three, four, five days, maybe the longest was a week at most. So <clears throat> basically jet lagged the whole time. And then mostly in meetings, you know, giving talks, attending meetings, and then a little bit of sightseeing. Mm -hmm. But this was really very different. I wanted to just take a sabbatical to have time away to, you know, think about the research, to work on some projects that required more in-depth uh, thinking, a book on emotion in particular. Um, and, I, you know, I didn't really know what I was getting into. I know no <laughs> Japanese. and. <laughs> But I knew enough that I had a sense that I would really enjoy it because I love the Japanese culture, I love Japanese food, and it's, uh, I often say to people, I often try to explain it to people, as it just has a sort of perfect mixture of a sense of adventure and unknown because mm -hmm. everything's new, I don't understand the language at all, but it's perfectly safe. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just the right combination of, you know, you really feel like you're on an adventure in a new place, but you feel safe. You know, mm -hmm. nothing bad's going to happen and it's all, you know, very orderly and <laughs> civilized. Very well so, contained. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> so, uh, and then I knew Matsuzawa. I had run into Tetsuro Matsuzawa at several meetings, and he visited Caltech, and I sort of had a vague, you know, standing invitation from him that should I ever consider a sabbatical in Kyoto, you know, please let him know and come and visit. So, uh, I picked Kyoto. Yeah. Yes. So, just there's a lot of things you just mentioned that I you can probably get to in the rest of this conversation but just at the start so you're one of the main purposes you're here uh, for is to you said write this book on emotion yeah yeah I would say two main purposes one is just kind of vague and global which is just simply time away mm. from all the duties of you know committee meetings and teaching and all the the whole causal nexus of obligations that I'm plugged into <laughs> in my normal life to unplug myself okay. from that and just have some time to reflect on things, and then more specifically, this book. So, at, at least one of the other uh, podcast interviewees we had, Francois, also was doing a type of sabbatical in Japan a number of years ago, and used that time to come out with a book, something yeah. about the, the, yeah. the ape and the sushi master. But I just wonder, if, is it the you've written books before or no. edited? No, uh, I've edited some, and I've written some, you know, papers that felt like writing a book. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, no, I've never written a book. It's actually going to be co-authored between myself and a colleague at Caltech, David Anderson, who works on emotion, but in a, in a much more reductionist, microscopic way, looking at particular circuits in rodents with optogenetics. Um, uh, yeah, but so, you know, we, we had been, and I in particular, had been thinking about a book on emotion because we'd been, and I'd been thinking about it, putting out papers, in particular sort of conceptual theoretical papers, but every time I started writing those, there was always far too much to say than you could put in a paper, and so a book seemed like the right format. And I would say I pretty much got the book done in my head, I guess is the right way to put it. So, you know, I have a table of contents and several of the first chapters written, material all assembled. It's not actually written yet, though, mm -hmm. so there's still quite a bit of work to be done. But okay. The plan when I came here, I had nothing on the book except an idea to write a book on emotion. So now I have, you know, a table of contents, little folders with PDFs in them, and a fairly detailed structure. So I know what needs to be done mm -hmm. next. So yes, I got that done. I uh, was just wondering about the process. I know a lot of people say when they're writing, it's good to get out to a different kind of environment and I think be so. able to get away from, as you mentioned, all the responsibilities that you have at home. Yeah, but yeah, it allows more, you know, in-depth thinking than the, my typical day at Caltech, as probably everybody's, you know, is, is really chopped up. Mm -hmm. So I have like half an hour here to work on something, but then the next meeting comes, and a phone call comes, and a student comes in, and it's all chopped up. So I want to come back to the, the emotion later. It's a really fascinating topic, but just kind of a silly question I have. So you, if I remember correctly, you got your PhD from Caltech. That's correct. And yes. then went away for a postdoc and then eventually came back right. on faculty. Right, right. And I, so Caltech has kind of, in some respects, like a mythical stance in, in the science, research, technology, academics. But I just wonder your kind of experiences. With it's a very special place. I mean, it's um, extremely small, it has less than a thousand students. Um, undergraduate students and the, the emphasis is really on the hard sciences mm -hmm. so you know if you want to uh, I mean you can't really study art or literature and in fact it doesn't even have psychology as a department there mm -hmm. so you couldn't get a PhD in psychology that mm -hmm. doesn't exist um, so it's, it's very small it's very basic science oriented um, and it has a particular culture I guess in part because it's so small it's very easy 
to have collaborations across disciplines mm -hmm. and you know you run into both faculty and also postdocs and students mm -hmm. just walking around or going to the to the to have coffee mm -hmm. so it's much easier to connect with people and to have interdisciplinary work um, and it just has a unique kind of atmosphere yeah I mean it's a great place but it's very different from a normal university for sure yeah so we had the, the guy, so I just mentioned briefly earlier, but the, the guy who I started this podcast with, Chris Martin, has a, I don't know how active it is at the moment, but a collaboration with uh, Professor Colin Camerer there, and mm -hmm. what they're interested in kind of game theory in applied to have chimpanzees playing in competitive game situations. Right, they had, this, they had a paper on that a little while ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. But I thought one of the funny anecdote that Chris... Uh, mentioned recently, he was here also for this um, PWS meeting that you last spoke at in March. Yes. And so we were talking about the chance to get this podcast in, but <laughs> he told a, a funny story that one of the times he was visiting um, Dr. Cameron there, they kind of set him up in your office. Oh, really? <laughs> I guess that's, you were away for something else. and That's just, quite possible. Yeah, I have two offices there, and so one which is in the building where Colin Cameron would be right. uh, is indeed one that I rarely use and okay. often just make available for visitors. Yes, that's true. <laughs> There's our little extra degree of separation here. But. Yeah, I collaborate quite a bit with Colin Kammerer. There's basically a, you know, a small group of us that uh, includes economists, behavioral economists like Colin Kammerer, and neuroscientists you know, broadly do sort of neuroeconomics type work, decision neuroscience. Uh, which is Colin Kammerer, myself, Antonio Rangel, and John O'Doherty. Um, and we collaborate a lot. We have joint grants, share students, mm -hmm. um, so we interact quite a bit. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so I guess if you, if you were to define your kind of um, main area of work, I, I guess it's related to neuroscience of, of cognition, social cognition, social emotion, cognition. social yes. cognition. Yeah. Yes, neuroscience of social cognition. And so you, I guess through Caltech, you have a lot of um, access to resources, but one of the things that fascinates me um, about your work and others there is just kind of the range of techniques that you guys are using and, mm. I mean, quite advanced techniques as well. So a lot of, I guess, brain imaging studies that you've been doing, but just in general using technology and then kind of building quantitative models of things. So, right. as you mentioned, hard science. Yeah, it's so we, we have we have brain imaging center at Caltech, and then um, many of the methods that I used are sort of through collaborations. For instance, with neurosurgery um, departments at, at at hospitals, and then one obvious strength, as you mentioned, of Caltech is the strong quantitative background. So, for instance, graduate students that I get mostly all come through a program called Computation and Neural Systems. Mm. And they, you know, are extremely quantitative and very good at programming and math and so forth. So, for uh, for that kind of approach, for more quantitative approaches that require lots of uh, programming, model construction, and so forth for the data analysis, uh, it's really good. And you have access to really good top students that can that can that have skills necessary for that. So, just getting back a little bit into the. Um the, some of the work that you do, um, I guess there are a couple of things that I, I kind of wanted to touch on. And one was um, related to the eye tracking studies that you guys are doing. But I think there were there were a lot of at first quirky looking things, but then 
of course, very uh, revealing and important questions being asked. And the, the two things I'm thinking about are the, uh, I think in the last talk you gave, you mentioned something about using uh, ecologically valid kind of stimuli right. to elicit responses. And one of the ecologically relevant or valid stimuli you have recently been using is uh, the office. Right, right. So we've been using, you know, both natural scenes and, and videos from the office and other places. Mm -hmm. And we're not the only ones doing that mm -hmm. in an attempt to get more, to get stimuli that are more generalizable to the real world. Right. Um, what people normally call ecological validity. So, yeah. Um, and that's, that's been working fairly well. And like I said, we're certainly not the only ones doing it. Uh, there's quite an effort in combination both with eye tracking and also with fMRI to use stimuli like that movies for mm -hmm. instance um, what you find for instance in fMRI that if somebody watches a movie is that you get much more robust brain activations than if you just show you know the typical kind of impoverished static stimuli on a screen mm -hmm. people are much more engaged more attentive so it's clearly engaging the brain in a way that probably is more ecologically valid and the trick then is just how to figure out analyzing the data mm -hmm. um, but people have put a lot of thought into that and as I mentioned in my talk, one of the things we've been doing is to try to you know, basically build models that would characterize the features of the stimuli. And once you have that, then you can start asking questions about which features in those models it is that are driving brain activations in which part of the brain. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not really that different from what we were doing all along. It's just a, it's a multivariate, you know, higher dimensional version of just using simple stimuli. I mean, it seems like the kind of data that are coming in just almost require that, um, or to be able to understand all of the. I guess in your, another thing I wanted to get to a bit later is, is the idea of, um, um, what's the words I'm looking for? I'm lost because I'm not a neuroscientist. Uh, but just in terms of the connectivity of uh, neural activity in the brain during those kinds of tasks. Right. But also trying to separate effects of kind of distributed information or single neuron effects on uh, the behaviors that you're, you're looking at as well. Right. And I just wonder how, so you, in the models that you use, so you have obviously a, a paradigm where you're looking at the kind of normal condition and then you have some sor certain groups of people uh, like those with autism spectrum disorder and those with brain lesions. Right, but at least in the first instance, the main goal really is to just just take you know typical brains, mm -hmm. uh, never mind autism and, and special populations like that, and just ask the question: How does the brain process you know social information or any information? And uh, to really do that, there's, I guess there's two relate somewhat related uh, difficulties with that. One is that. Like right now, when we're looking across the table here, you know, here's the tape recorder, here's the soy sauce, and there's Lyra texting and, and so forth. <laughs> there is there are many, many different uh, stimuli here that are all competing for visual attention, that are all being processed by the brain, and that's the kind of natural environment in which our brains evolved to operate. Mm -hmm. Not you know sitting in a dark room seeing a single stimulus come <laughs> up on the screen. That's right. right. So there's many, many things going on, and the question is how. How does that work? You know, how does the brain process that? So one theme is just that it's uh, complex, for lack of a better word. But yeah. I guess the term that people would normally use is that it's, that it's very high dimensional. Right. So if you wanted to characterize the stimulus space, it's not, you know, you can't characterize it in just two or three or four dimensions. It's hundreds or thousands. Um, and then the second one is how... Um, 
how to make sense of that, in particular to come in with like categories or hypotheses or to have a data-driven kind of approach. Right. So when you look at the behavior of a chimpanzee or another animal, for instance, in behavioral studies, you sit there and you, if you watch it in the field, you could score certain things, certain interactions, sounds, and the question is, well, how, how do you know that those are the right categories? Maybe it should be very different kinds of categories that you just don't know, and how could you ever find them? So, uh, especially for the neuroscience data, people are taking a more data-driven approach mm -hmm. and really asking, let's just try and sort of keep the data as raw as possible. Can we use uh, sort of machine learning and uh, mm -hmm. unsupervised classification algorithms to tell us what the categories would be? Mm -hmm. So rather than saying, let's look for the brain area that processes faces, maybe we should look for the brain area that you know, I don't know, processes certain kinds of configurations in a certain context, but we would never guess what that is because, you know, we have these categories, ways of carving up the world and making sense of the data as scientists that we sort of bring to the table, but that may not at all be the right way to understand mm -hmm. how the brain works, which may look very alien to us. Mm -hmm. So those are the, I think, you know, two big related challenges. One is that what the brain evolved to process is high-dimensional, complex, multimodal information, and the way that it's processing that is not with the categories that we normally think of as scientists, not as you know, faces, objects, text. Um, it may be more complicated than that. So to discover that, that's a lot of the methods that we and many others have been working on. Mm -hmm. It's a weird field because, of course, you worry that at the end of that exercise, if it works, you could end up with a science that looks very alien to you and that doesn't really allow you to understand people except in a very mathematical way but uh, you know the hope would be that that won't be the case that somehow we, we would gain a deeper understanding of how the brain really processes information it, in a way it's not that different from physics right mm -hmm. if you ask folk people or even you know a century ago about the physical world a lot of the categories are based on the way we would normally, you know, it wouldn't be based on quantum mechanics and string theory, right? right, right. Whereas nowadays, it's clear that the, the reality is completely alien from the way that we would normally categorize it. Mm -hmm. And it's probably going to be the same way with the way the brain works. We have some intuitive understanding, which has been the basis for all of psychology, all of behavioral science, and most of neuroscience. It's probably not really the best way to describe how it works, which will be something quite alien to us. Mm -hmm. I guess that, I mean, the brain consciousness, the idea of consciousness, and I guess in your work you, you do touch upon things like theory of mind is, I guess, one of the, the great remaining questions that we have in science. So maybe this is, I guess this is probably representative of the current uh, major trend in how we're going about doing that. Right. Without being able to a priori formulate. Yeah, useful hypotheses, I guess. It's a pretty new kind of thing, in large part because the kinds of the kinds of and quantity of data required mm. are new. I mean, fMRI, for instance, hasn't been around for very long at all, mm -hmm. and the idea of having very large amounts of fMRI data that you can analyze is really very new. And then the algorithms as well. Uh, in particular, lots of like what Google, you know, DeepMind is doing yeah. now. Lots of sort of deep learning, machine learning algorithms. That's all very, very new. So both the computing power and the mathematical tools for the analysis and just the, the quantity of data and data sharing, mm -hmm. those are all very new developments, um, really just in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. 
so I also know that part of the, or another major theme in your research is, is comparative, I mean, using a comparative approach. And so not, not only looking at, oh, so within humans, I mean, looking at, as we mentioned, the different um, types of populations within humans, but also across species. So right, you showed right. some work where you, uh, you've, you've done similar studies with, uh, with macaques or with rats. And I just wonder when you, so earlier you mentioned this idea of ecological validity, are you, but you also mentioned that you're trying to use as similar a paradigm or stimulus set as possible across the different species. So how do you kind of reconcile the, the, you know, the implicit differences between the species and try and kind of match your experiments to, to get you the information you need? Well, that's super hard. I mean, all the, all the studies that have other species involved are all collaborative with other labs. Mm -hmm that do research in monkeys and so forth. It's extremely hard, but I think it is essential because if all you have is human data and you're just looking at how the human mind processes information, I think you never get the kind of evolutionary grounding that you really need to answer that question. A good case in point is the study of emotions. So if you look at neuroimaging studies and a lot of the psychology of emotion, it's 100% human and it's very focused on the way people think about emotion and the concepts and the words that they have. So there's lots of emphasis on cross-cultural studies of emotion, mm -hmm. on people's experiences of emotion. Uh, and in fact, some people saying that you can't really study emotion in animals because mm -hmm. they, can't, they can't tell you about it. Mm -hmm. And that seems like the wrong starting point. I mean, I have no doubt that what people say about emotion and the words they use are related emotion and they're interesting topics but they're not the place to start the place to start are simple behaviors in animals mm -hmm. uh, that you can quantify in a better way and then slowly ask the question how did that evolve and get much more elaborated in humans and how does that lead to people's thoughts and words for describing the emotional experiences that they have mm -hmm. but I think that's been a problem with pretty much all of psychology actually uh, I think to understand human psychology, you need to have animal psychology as well. Uh, because otherwise you don't have the grounding. I mean, we didn't just suddenly appear in the world, we have a long evolutionary history. And so to understand the psychological processes, I think you need to ask the question, where did they come from? How did they evolve? Uh, and I think it's especially important when you want to ask, how do those psychological processes map onto the brain? Uh, because again, there's a, there's a story there. There's an evolutionary story to tell. And I think you need to pay attention to that. So I think it's important for, for many reasons to do the studies in animals. And then, of course, there are practical reasons as well, which is that it's, there are many advantages to doing studies, both behavioral and invasive neuroscience studies, uh, in animals compared to humans. For social cognition, you know, the, for social behavior, one big advantage is that the animals generally don't know that they are, they never know that they're in an experiment. So they treat a social stimulus like the real thing. With humans, it's the opposite. They always know they're in an experiment. <laughs> and no matter what you do, they will process it differently. So they come in and the first thing they do is sign informed consent. Right. So immediately they know it's an experiment, it's not real. Well, that changes everything. So, uh, so I think you really need the triangulation with animal data to, for many reasons, both conceptual and methodological, to make sense of the human data. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard, and I think that's probably one reason why it's often de-emphasized, and many cognitive neuroscientists uh, think it's irrelevant or useless. Um, they, 
maybe they're not, they don't honestly think it's irrelevant and useless. They just realize it's so difficult, let's just forget it. Yeah, right. Uh, but I think, you know, we need to try. And that, that was one impetus for me doing my sabbatical here with Matsuzawa and uh, PWS in Kyoto to have a little link to that uh, animal behavior and animal psychology and get a sense for how you all do your research. <laughs> I, th I think the, the trajectory in, you know, it's certainly within bio, the biological study of animal behavior, um, cognition in general is another good example, but I suppose at some point when studies of animal behavior first started, people had no problem, um, frankly, anthropomorphizing about why animals were doing the types of behaviors they were. But then, of course, as the field kind of grew, uh, matured a bit, and became more scientific, there was almost like the opposite reaction where, no, we can't possibly discuss these things because we can't impose what, you know, what we experience on what animals are experiencing. And so people didn't even talk about things like cognition. And then now emotion is kind of the new frontier for that. I guess right. all of the, the recent work on animal cognition, which has clearly shown um, that that's, that's a real thing outside of the human experience. Um, and so now I guess we're starting to see that with emotion as well, where if you, as you mentioned, if you just kind of step away from the subjective experience of emotion, there's still something that governs behavior. Right, right. I think you really need to step away from subjective experience mm. in human research for the same reason that right. people did so historically in animal research. Right. But, you know, if you ask, especially in social psychology, there's, you know, influential papers and opinions that basically say social psychology is about human conscious experience. If you take that as the starting point, that's a real problem. And then you certainly can't make the link very easily to animals. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to not take that step. I have no doubt that both humans and animals have conscious experiences, but I wouldn't start there mm -hmm. uh, as a scientist. I mean, that's a very, very difficult final question. But the place to start is what's happening in terms of the psychological theory and what's happening in the brain to regulate social behavior. Start there and there's, you know, that'll keep you busy for the next hundred <laughs> years and then you can talk about consciousness. <laughs> so how did the idea to use the office, not to dwell on kind of more tri trivial parts of the research, but come about? I mean, well, that's obviously something that people love and Yeah, it was all work be. by a former postdoc in my lab. Um, was now an assistant professor at Indiana University, Dan Kennedy, and he um, started using this in, in a research study looking at autism. I'd never actually watched The Office myself. I don't, I don't, I don't have a TV at home, okay. so we don't watch TV. But people knew this sitcom, The Office. It's, it's terrible. Have you ever seen it? Yes. It's really embarrassing. Yes. But, very but cringeworthy. That, but, but that was the whole point. You know, it's very embarrassing and has all these socially awkward moments. Yes. And so that's that's the kind of brain processing that we wanted to engage. It requires you to really figure out what people are thinking and intending, what all the social relationships are, in order to find it socially awkward. Yeah. Uh, and which is a process that people with autism have difficulty with. So in a sense, it was the perfect stimulus that people had, you know, poured millions of dollars into designing. And the reason that, that you know, people in my lab and you and others choose to watch this is because it's so socially salient and full of all these faux pas and, you know, social things going on. Um, but it was a postdoc in my lab that uh, Dan, Dan Kennedy that first started, started using it. And now, you know, we, we're using a variety of videos, movies, uh, for various projects. But as I said, we're not the only ones. It's kind of sure. But so what it, those socially awkward situations, um, I guess one of the, the main drivers that you're, you mentioned your postdoc was interested in was kind of looking at how 
in the normal case, people process that information mm -hmm. and what kind of things they pay, pay most attention to, and then what right. happens in the case of, of autism spectrum disorder. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so this was, you know, sort of rich, more ecologically valid kind of stimulus uh, mm -hmm. that we could back that story out of. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that you need to do is then to be able to quantify, mm -hmm. okay, so can you come up with a, you know, a parametric regressor that would quantify at each point in time in the movie how is social awkwardness? Mm -hmm. And he did that. So he had a whole bunch of independent people watch the movie and with a joystick rate the social awkwardness. Mm -hmm. So you know, sometimes it's low, sometimes it's high, and you can then use that as a regressor and ask uh, where as a function of social awkwardness do you see activation in the brain. That's really fascinating. And you could do that with any other rating. So you could get you know, lots of semantic ratings and ask what do I see in the brain that best correlates with the, with the ratings, the time varying ratings that people would give to the movie. Mm -hmm. And that works remarkably well. Um, so that's the, that's the general approach that we and, and as I said other mm -hmm. folks have taken. There are many other things you can do with movies. So you can do more data driven approaches. Uh, there are many things you can do. But mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's kind of a growing field mm -hmm. as I mentioned to use movies as stimuli, mm -hmm. in particular for fMRI studies these days. They activate the brain much more strongly and you get uh, activation to many, many different features, you know, all in one experiment. Yes. Whereas otherwise I would need to do a separate experiment to look at faces, to look at text, right. to look at, you know, whatever category I want to look at, all as separate contrasts. It would take me forever. Uh, here, they're all there present together. I just need to construct the right model to back out the brain activation specific to any feature that I'm interested in. And do you have kind of similar um, stimuli for the, the primate or rodent models that you use as well? I mean, I'm not so sure about the rodents, but are you giving uh, videos like of that kind of nature to the monkeys, for example? or? A little bit. The person we've been collaborating there is Catalin uh, Gotthard at the University of Arizona, and she has looked at that a little bit. She had a paper in Current Biology maybe a year ago or so um, using videos of, of monkeys. Yeah. And looking in particular, when a monkey sees another monkey making eye contact to them, uh, it turned out that cells in the amygdala were particularly sensitive to that social signal, seeing a primate you know, turn and make eye mm -hmm. contact with you. So it's those kinds of relevant social signals that you want to get you know, from these stimuli. And if you have a video where there are many things happening, uh, you could discover that. If I want to go in and do this in a very reductionist way, I would need to do an experiment to see, well, does the cell respond to the face sideways, or the face right, front right, facing, right, right. or the upside down face, or eye direction left, right, down, up. It would take me forever to find the right combination. But if I just have a naturally occurring video, you can be sure there will be signals that the brain will respond to in there because that's what it evolved to process. And so all you need to do is then find them and they're there in that rich stimulus. Um, so it has been done a little bit in animal studies, but still it's, it's a minority there for sure. It's just difficult to come up with the, with the, right, with the right stimuli and the right analyses. But I think it's, you know, we're sort of at a point where a lot of neuroscience in particular is changing and starting to use these more ecologically rich stimuli. Um, we're going to see much more of it in the, in the future, I think, both for human and animal research. Mm -hmm. So just to kind of close out, I want to return full circle back to this, your stay in Japan and the development of this project on emotion. Um, to just kind of look at big picture here. So what, yeah. what is it that you, you kind of hope to accomplish mainly with that, um, with this project? And 
in a way, kind of redirect the focus of research on, on emotions and humans and animals? Write a book, and uh, I've also written, been working on papers um, on the same theme. Write a book that would lay the foundations for how I think a science of emotion should proceed. I guess this is the basic way of putting it. Um, and oh, a big part of that was just uh, simply clarifying things. Mm -hmm. So if you ask people, if I asked you now, and if you or if you search the literature, what do you mean by an emotion? You're going to get a whole bunch of confusing answers, <laughs> and that's what's what's characterized the field that people. Uh, are ambiguous or vague or just don't know what they're talking about or if they are specific they talk about different things and some people mean the conscious experience of emotion some people mean concepts for emotion some people mean recognizing emotion in other people and so forth and so I think that the main starting point has been or the, the main uh, several first chapters of the book are devoted to trying to make clear uh, the separation of those different topics and asking what's what's the core which for me is emotions are central states that regulate behavior at a certain level of complexity they're more complex than reflexes they're less complex than deliberate planned volitional behavior and they evolved as sort of packages to deal with recurring uh, themes in the environment to regulate behavior in a way that's more flexible than reflexes, mm -hmm. but not as computationally intensive and open-ended as just, you know, free volitional uh, behavior. And I think once you have that starting point, you can then ask, okay, now what conscious experiences are associated with that? How in different cultures, when we watch people uh, exhibit behaviors that seem emotional, do we carve that up and classify and conceptualize that and what words do we have and so forth. But those are all derivative questions to the core question of what an emotion should be. So that's the basic theme of the book, to try to return to some anchoring for what emotions are really all about, which isn't new. I mean, people have written this stuff before, mm -hmm. but somehow it got buried, and in particular it got very <laughs> buried in recent uh, social psychology and also cognitive neuroscience where the emphasis as I mentioned by far is on human semantic knowledge and concepts for and experiences of emotion not the emotion itself yeah. <laughs> so that's a big part I think it's you know it's really put like this it's really the, the project is not that specific to emotion it's really a project in the philosophy of science frankly mm -hmm. to try to clean up a field and uh, provide conceptual distinctions that I think would be helpful to move it forward you know so well, I, I definitely hope it does I mean you you've also spoken with uh, one of my graduate students who's kind of going with the idea of using yes um, yeah, what's your name? Cecile. Cecile, yes, working on disgust. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we come at it from a very different perspective. I, you know, we're kind of starting in behavioral ecology and uh, the relationship between infectious disease and evolution and behavior. Right. And, but that's just one of the things that's sitting right there is, you know, how do animals have this kind of adaptive system that's, you know, that's motiv motivating them to behave in certain ways? And right, right. If you just make it bare bones like that, it's not so inconceivable to think that. Yes, it could be an emotional. Right. No, and, uh, and the data that she had in the in the monkeys, and I guess is now planning to collect in bonobos. Exactly. Yeah. Um, looked very promising. That you know, you would definitely say yes. Of course, they have discussed. Uh, and in order to understand it, we need to 
do these experiments, yeah. and and uh, I guess the one big challenge was the flexibility that it's not just you know discussed for one simple yeah. sensory cue. Yes, that would be like a reflex. That's not what yes. emotions yeah, are. Yeah. The point is that you know they're much more flexible and context sensitive, and of course it makes them more challenging to investigate. Uh, but disgust is a great uh, case in point, I think. It's a clear emotion with phylogenetic continuity that we would want to understand in animals and eventually find the neural systems that mediate it in animals mm -hmm. and then ask how does that then get elaborated in humans into moral disgust, etc. Mm -hmm. And I guess the one that you've mainly focused on is fear, emotion and fear, a lot. Yes, serendipitously. Okay. I mean, uh, just because I happened to start working with this patient with amygdala lesions and it turned out that fear was the emotion that was impacted by that. But it wasn't because I, you know, I was particularly interested in fear. Um, it was serendipitous. Yeah, it came about because of this patient. Um, and there, that's a, that's another clear case in point. So one one question for sure is: Okay, so we have disgust, we have fear, maybe anger, aggression. Okay, so that's three. That doesn't seem like very many emotions. Mm -hmm. And so one challenge I think that you know you always hear is: Okay, so how many are there, and how would you be able to tell? Um, and I think that then it gets complicated very quickly yes. and probably the answer is uh, you know the kinds of words we have for emotion categories are not at least not all of them the best way to carve up emotions and we need a more dimensional space in which to locate them but the starting point again has to be to conceive of emotions as internal states that regulate behavior at a particular level of flexibility and complexity more flexible than reflexes, not like volitional thinking, but somewhere in the middle. And then there's lots of work to be done from there. Okay. Well, Dr. Ralph Adolfs, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. And I'm sorry to have interrupted your breakfast. It was a delicious breakfast. And thanks for joining us here at Denny's for a breakfast yes, of Denny's. salmon and natto and tea. Fit for champions. You have been listening to The Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.